You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with the master of launching businesses and side hustles, Josh Kaufman. Josh is a best-selling author, researcher, and speaker who has helped millions of people and businesses reach their goals. Josh's TED Talk, The First 20 Hours, has been viewed on YouTube over 30 million times. His research has been featured by the New York Times, the BBC, and the Wall Street Journal, amongst many others. On top of all of this, Josh has published three best-selling books along the way, The First 20 Hours, How to Fight a Hydra, and The Personal MBA, which is now in its 10th anniversary edition. His book, The Personal MBA, is literally used as required reading in business schools around the world, and the content is pure gold. Me and Josh recorded this episode back in March of 2021, and we ended up talking for two hours. We released the show in two parts for episodes number 106 and 107, and in this Yap Classic, we shortened down the episode to the best parts and focused it on business fundamentals. Josh and I yap about all you need to know when it comes to starting a business, from how to find a viable market, to the different ways that you can test your idea like shadow testing and field testing. We then get into how to price your offering and Josh shares some incredible sales tips. Whether you're looking to start a new venture or you just want to level up your career, you're going to find a lot of gems in this one. Now here's my conversation with the brilliant Josh Kaufman. The topic that I want to talk about today is starting a business. I've had a couple episodes on this. I I had a, a Yap Snacks episode called five steps to launch a side hustle. I thought it'd be great to kind of pick your brain in terms of how to start a new business because I know so many of my listeners want to know how to do this in the right way. So I'd love to start off with markets. So one of the first things that you have to do when you're thinking about a new business idea is to have a viable market, to target a market that, you know, would have demand in in your services. So what's the best way to go about determining if your market is a good enough market, if it's a viable market for your business idea? Yeah, there, there are a couple of very useful ideas I talk about in the personal MBA directly related to this. One, which, which you've highlighted uh, brilliantly is that you have to have a market to begin with or the business is, is just not going to work, right? You know, so if there's not a waiting group of people ready and, and willing to pull out their wallet, checkbook, and credit card and, and say, yes, please, I will take one, um, you're going to have a hard time. And so they, there are a couple of things that really help in the process of finding a market that's going to be large enough to support whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, the first, and this is related to an idea called the iron law of the market, which is, is I think was, was best framed by Mark Andreessen, the now a venture capitalist, but, but the founder of Netscape. And he just says markets that don't exist don't care how smart you are. You can have the most brilliant idea. You can have the best technology. You can have the best of everything. And without a group of people willing to pay you, you have nothing when it comes uh, to, to the actual operation of a business. The easiest shortcut which sounds obvious when you hear it or if you think about it, but it's like, pay attention to what people are already spending money on because you know there's a 100% certainty that people are buying this particular thing. And if you can offer it in a better way, in a new way, with a a bit of a twist or, or to a market that is not used to buying this sort of thing, very often the biggest competitor to a business is not another business. The biggest competitor is non-consumption. People just not doing this yet, not purchasing this in this way. And so 
I like to say a, a lot of early stage business formation looks a lot like anthropology. You're going out into the world, you're asking questions, you're looking at what people are doing and what they're not doing and what they maybe could be doing if they just knew that there was a better way of, of solving this particular problem. And so, you know, the early stages is you're, you're going out, you're examining what people are, are doing, and you're just trying to find opportunities, things that could be a little less frustrating, a little more efficient, a little more flexible, a little more enjoyable. And this is an idea called the hassle premium. And so usually uh, the more annoying something is, you know, for, for a broad definition of annoying, the more people are willing to pay money, perfectly good money to make that annoying thing go away. And so sometimes in, in the development of a, a business, sometimes you're solving a new problem that hasn't been solved yet. But then also sometimes you're, taking an existing problem and you're just making it a little bit more fun, less annoying, less of a hassle. From there, it gets to a point of um, almost triage. So you, you know, you're going out in, into the world, you're looking at all of the potential opportunities. And if you're in this frame of mind, it's very easy to come up with a list of 500 things that, that you could potentially build a, a business out of. The, the world is full of opportunities like this. The question becomes, which of those opportunities are your best shot? What are the ones that are going to be the most straightforward, the most rewarding, the most interesting? So what should you spend your focus on? And there, there are two things that really help with this. The first is understanding the fundamental structure of a business, what a business is and what it does, helps you imagine, before any of this exists, just imagine in your own mind, what a business in this area might look like. And, and this is an, an idea. It's the first thing I cover in the book. It's called the five parts of every business. And so a, a lot of particularly early stage entrepreneurs are like, I need to write a business plan. You know, how do I write a business plan? What's a good business? Like, tell me all about this. It's very, very simple. Take a sheet of paper. You're going to write five headings on it. And he, he, these are the headings. Value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, and finance. And so value creation is like, you're making something valuable for other people. So what are you making and who are you making it for? That's value creation. Marketing is, if people don't know that you exist or your thing exists, they're not going to buy it. So how are you going to get their attention and make them interested in this thing you have to sell? Marketing. Sales is, once you have their attention, you need to convince them to pull out their wallet, checkbook, or credit card and give you money for it. That's the sales process. How are you going to do that? Once you take someone's money, how are you going to give them the thing that you promised? Uh, because if you don't, you're, it's a scam. It's not a business. And so what does is, what is the delivery of the value look like? And finance is very simple. So for value creation and marketing and um, value delivery, you're spending money. For sales, that's the part of the business where money is flowing in. So finance is just the process of looking at how much money is flowing in from sales, how much money is flowing out in value creation, marketing, and value delivery. Are we bringing in more money than we're, we're spending? Because if that's not the case, we're in trouble. Something needs to change. But then also, is it enough? Is it enough to make all of your time and effort and attention worthwhile? Can you use the information you have at your disposal to make better decisions about either how to spend money or how to bring more money in? And so really, when you look at those five steps, value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, and finance, that's what a business is. That's what a business does. And if you don't know the answer to any one of those five steps, that's a blank that you need to fill in before the business is going to work. And so. For any business idea, this is the best place to start. You need answers to these questions. You need to have a clear picture of what this looks like and how it's going to work. And then from there, you can start to evaluate one idea versus another. You know, do we think the market for this is better than that? Do we think that this is something that we could build once and sell for a long period of time? Or are we going to require a large amount of investment ongoing? These are um, things that I talk about 
in the personal MBA um, called the 10 ways to evaluate a market, which is once you have a clear idea of what's going on, then you can start to ask some more specific questions of like, is this the kind of thing that seems like it's going to be a good fit for me? But you always start with a clear picture of what the business idea is first, and then you build on top of that by asking some more specific questions. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you took us back and you walked through kind of the elements of a business and what we need to think about, because I think that's so important. And I think that a lot of people start businesses without thinking those things through. And then they realize that their business has no margin, that their business expenses are, are you know, they priced it wrong and, and they're not making a profit. And so I think all of that is really, really important. So thank you for walking us back. Now, let's say we, we did map those things out. How then can we decide or what are the signs um, that we should look for when it comes to our market? So like deciding if there's people that will actually want to buy our product. How do we go about understanding if we found a good market? Yeah, let's, let's go through some of the, the 10 ways to evaluate a market in more detail because there, there are a lot of specific useful things to think about in this process. Um, the place I always start is, is urgency. Is this something that people are going to buy right away without hesitation, without caring too much about the price, without knowing all of the details? If so, you're in good shape. So for example, let's say cures to cancer. That's something that the entire world is going to buy right away. No hesitation. Doesn't, don't care how much it costs, right? Like, give it to me now. There are a lot of business ideas that fall on the extreme other end of urgency. Like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. Um, when you're talking to customers, it might feel like a certain amount of apathy of like, huh, okay, cool. And so having, you know, when, when you're evaluating an idea, the more urgency you feel from customers, that's a really good sign that you're on the right track. Things like market size go into this category as well, right? Like, are you selling to billions of people or are you selling to 10? If you're selling to, to major world governments, selling to 10 customers might be, frankly, a good business if you're selling you know, billions of dollars of, of goods. But in general, the larger the, the potential market size, the more people who want this sort of thing, the better the market is. Um, the same thing goes with pricing potential. And so the higher the price, generally speaking, that you can charge, the more money that, come, that flows in and the more you keep of that as, as profit, you know, the more flexibility you have in terms of your pricing structure, the more opportunity there is. There are some related ideas to that too, which is cost of customer acquisition and cost of value delivery. So how much, you know, in terms of marketing and sales activity, do you have to spend upfront in order to get a new customer? And how much do you need to spend to actually deliver the value to them on the back end? So you could think like an ideal business is, there's a huge market. I can sell for an enormous amount of money. It costs me almost nothing to get a new customer. And it costs me almost nothing to sell to that customer once I have them. Like that's, that's an ideal situation to be in. Those are the big ones. And then there are some, I, I call this um, quality of life factors. So um, how unique is this? Like, is this something you and only you can provide? So Yap Media, for example, is you. Nobody else can do that. You know, th there are other things that might compete for the amount of attention, but there's not going to be another hala. That's not a, a, a concern. The more unique you are, the better. Speed to market, which is from the time you're, you're doing this evaluation right now, how quickly can you have something out and selling to the market? And generally speaking, faster is better, right? you know, versus something that you would need to invest in potentially for decades before you have something to sell. That's, that's a, a barrier. The same thing goes for upsell potential. And so sometimes there are very attractive businesses where the thing that you're selling upfront is not necessarily the thing that's going to make you a lot of money over the long term. It's a way to sell other things on the back end. So the, the classic uh, Gillette razors and blades model, right? Like the, you know, the initial upfront sale of the razor is not as important as selling refills to the blades over a period of decades. There are a lot of businesses that fall into that category. In some senses, you can lose money on the initial sale, 
and then just make up for it because the lifetime value of that customer is so high that each additional customer brings in thousands and thousands of dollars in revenue. Insurance is a really great example of that. And then the, the last thing, which is one that I think an enormous amount about, which is evergreen potential. And so when you make this thing for sale, is this something that you need to continue to invest a lot in in order to keep it relevant and to keep it selling? So technology is the extreme example of this. Companies like Intel pouring billions of dollars into a chip fabrication factory that's going to be relevant for two years. And then those chips will be obsolete and then they'll have to build another one. On the other extreme uh, example of this, books are fantastic for this because you write the book once and you just print lots of copies. And if you write it well and correctly, it continues to sell for a very long period of time. And you can update it if you want to, but you don't have to. It's going to continue to be relevant over a very long period of time. And so, yeah, in general, I really like to think about businesses. Starting a business is a lot of work. And so I like to think about like, what are the things that I could invest time, attention, money, and energy into now that are going to be just as relevant 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line without additional effort required on my part? Because that makes every offer that I make, every business that I build, an asset that keeps ticking in the background. And then instead of continuing to invest in keeping that thing running, I can build another one and then another one. And just over time, build this portfolio of businesses and products that continues to do well. And I I think at least for my personality and the way that I like to, to go through life, that's a really fun way of running a business that I think is, is underrepresented and, and much more possible today than it ever has been. Hold tight, everyone. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm gonna like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh my gosh, Josh, you are so smart. I could just hear your voice all day telling me business advice, honestly. (laughs) Like I'm sure our listeners are gonna love this episode. One of the things that I wanna discuss is testing our idea. Because like you said previously, you kind of outlined the factors you should think about when launching a business. I think it's important to test your idea before you invest too much money into it, before you get outside funding. You need to make sure that it's a, a viable offering that people are willing to pay money for. So what, in your opinion, is the best ways to test our idea before we launch our business? Yeah, there there are a couple. And you're right. There are some critical assumptions that go into to every business. Like, how much can I sell this for? And how many people are going to buy it? And how much am I going to spend? And, you know, making the math work is, is a really important part of the whole process. And so there are two primary methods that I really like to use for this. The first one is the fastest and the easiest, which is called shadow testing. And this is essentially, so it has many different forms. Sometimes it's called concept testing. Sometimes there are prototypes involved, but it's always this testing an idea with potential customers before you move, before you make anything like just, you know, an idea on a sheet of paper, just presenting it to the people who are most likely to buy from you and asking the critical question, which is, is this something that you're willing to pay for? And the strongest version of this test is you actually take orders from them. Like, yeah, sign on the dotted line. You know, we won't charge you until it's ready. But, you know, essentially think of what what Kickstarter is, right? Like, there's no product. There's a lot of development and and sometimes manufacturing and and long, expensive processes that need to happen before the, the product is ready. But the Kickstarter, it's just a page. It's just some images. It's it's some some text on the internet. There's nothing there. But it's enough that potential customers can look at it and say, oh yeah, that sounds cool. That's for me. I would like to pre-order one. And Kickstarter makes that very easy to do. And so for most forms of businesses, shadow testing is something that is, is very, very valuable and worth doing because it can help answer that critical question immediately. Are you making something that people are willing to pay for? The longer term form of testing that, that is just as if not more valuable is field testing. 
And so it's making the thing. And then you, as the business owner, you, you know, you and your staff and the people who are involved in this particular market, the best situations where the company improves to the greatest extent most quickly are very often the companies that use the thing that they themselves make. Because think of it from a speed of learning or a feedback cycle sort of thing. Like if you're using the thing that you make and something goes wrong or something breaks or, you know, something, you know, right away, you, you can act on that information much more quickly than waiting for a bug report to come in from a customer with incomplete information and incomplete context. And so anytime there's an opportunity for you to use the thing that you make, you end up improving the quality of the product or the offer much, much faster than you otherwise would. That is such great insight. Okay, so let's say we tested, we, we have our business idea. You know, we wrote our little business plan. We feel that we have a viable market and a viable product. How do we decide pricing? Like what are the steps to decide how to price our product at this point? Okay, so there is a, there are multiple ways of, of doing this testing. The thing that I like about pricing, which I think is an underappreciated fact, I call this in, um, I think this is chapter three of the book in sales. Um, I, I call this the, the pricing uncertainty principle, which is that prices are 100% arbitrary and malleable. You can charge any price for anything at any time without limitation. Like it, it, you, you just... You, you want to sell a rock for $10 billion, go nuts. doesn't mean somebody's going to buy it. But you have an enormous amount of flexibility in the number that you stick next to the, the price tag on something. And so with that, there are a bunch of different ways that you can kind of triangulate your way into a price that makes sense. And the, the methods that most commonly come up are replacement cost, market comparison, uh, discounted cash flow, which is the most financy way of pricing something, and value comparison. And so, you know, this is actually you know, going back to our, our conversation of of background. This is something that I learned by studying real estate, and it becomes very, very apparent when you do something like, okay, you, you have a house to sell. Well, houses don't come with price tags attached to them. You have to you have to put a price on it somehow. How are you going to do it? And so a replacement cost is just like, well, how much did it cost to build the house? Well, that's a pretty good estimate of, of at least a minimum of how much it's, it's worth. So let's add up all of that. Let's tack on some margin to compensate for, for time and energy. And you know that's, that's a pretty good ballpark of what something's worth. Uh, the market comparison method is very often the one that's used to sell houses. Like, Okay, let's find another house kind of like this that has already sold. Well, this house is probably roughly comparable to, to this other one. We'll charge this much. Discounted cash flow is like, well, okay, let's say we decided to rent this house. There's a series of payments that would come in from, from the use of it. And there are uh, pretty involved financial formulas that say, okay, yeah, if you can charge $2,000, $3,000 a month for this house, then over a certain period of time, accounting for interest rates and yada, 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 you get a lump sum payment of X. That's how much the house is worth. And then you get into the one that has the most promise, which is value comparison. And value comparison is just like understanding from the customer's perspective, what is awesome about this particular thing to the person who's buying it? How valuable are those things? And how much might they be willing to spend because this thing has unique benefits that they can't find anywhere else? So the example with a house might be a run-down, not-so-great house in every other respect. But if it was owned by Elvis Presley at one point, that house is going to be worth millions and millions of dollars because there's something intrinsic about the house that is valuable to a certain type of customer. And so... It, when, when it comes to profit and profit margin, value comparison is where you get your maximum profit and your maximum profit margin because you're really understanding what the customer is buying it for, why it's valuable, and then you're pricing specifically based on that. 
for entrepreneurs, there is as as a general rule, new entrepreneurs tend to systematically underprice what they're offering based on the value that they're they're providing. I think a lot of that comes from a certain amount of insecurity or hesitation or, you know, one wanting approval, not necessarily knowing what the market will bear. Like, you know, uh, let's let's play it safe and make sure that that I give people good reasons to uh, to sign up for this. My general rule of thumb for new entrepreneurs is take whatever price that you are initially thinking sounds reasonable and triple it. And you're probably in the ballpark of what the market will actually bear. If you don't feel good about tripling it, at least double it. And you're, 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 you're in a more happy place. I don't know about you, Hala, but I definitely fell into this, this trap early on. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that, like, it just feels so uncomfortable the first time you ask for something that in your mind seems really unreasonable. And it is a very good feeling when the market proves that, no, that, no, really, that's all in your head. You don't have to worry about it so much. The market will, will pay so much more than you expect. I totally agree. I hear this all the time. People undercharge. They don't realize how much their services are worth. They don't calculate or incorporate their own time into their offering as well. I see that happen a lot. And so I totally agree. Double or triple what you were originally going to ask for. Um, you'll be surprised. And if, if somebody's willing to buy it, then you've, you know, did a good job with your pricing and then you've just got a couple more people and maybe you need to, you know, focus it on a certain segment of your market. Maybe your product is not for everyone, right? So I totally agree. Okay, so with pricing, I know you mentioned that value comparison is the best way to get the most margin, right? So talk to us about high ticket offers because this is like a buzzword now. Everybody's talking about their high ticket offer. How can we, you know, what is the best way to create a high ticket offer? What are the elements of a high ticket offer? Like, what do we need to think about there? Yeah, there, there are some structural advantages in having a high priced, high profit offer, whatever that offer might be. And it, just think about it in terms of like, you may have fewer customers who are willing to pay that price, but that also means less value delivery cost. It means less customer support. It means potentially less marketing, less sales. You know, there's, there's a lot of advantages to just like having a group of people who are really into whatever it is that you do and them paying enough that you can focus a lot of, of time and attention on them. And so I, I think it's it's one of those things that what the high price offer is is extremely market dependent, right? Like you're finding your super fans, you're finding the people who are are the most into or get the most value of whatever it is that you have to offer. Okay, so this was such great information. Now let's say, you know, we've got our product, we've tested it, you know, we've got our pricing, we go to, you know, speak to our customers. We've got people who have paid, but then we start getting our first objections in sales. People are starting to give their objections. What are the different kind of objections that we can anticipate and how can we counteract them? Yeah, so I think there's there's a, a whole bunch of different objections that that come into play whenever you're trying to convince somebody of something. And the first thing to think about or realize is, is there's a psychological tendency when we feel like we're being pushed into making a decision or pushed into doing something, this is an idea called reactance. Like there's an automatic desire to push back. So uh, think of the, the stereotypical really bad used car salesman who, who's just trying to sell you anything as long as you buy it today. That's something that you you want to av- avoid the feeling or avoid the perception of because it actually works very much not in your favor. It pushes customers away from you instead of pulling you to, them towards you or, or wanting. I think this was, there was a, a, a sales trainer, the, the late Jim Rohn, who talked about the best position that you can find yourself in is positioning yourself to the customer as an assistant buyer. You're not there to convince them of anything. You're not there to, to sell them a bill of goods. Your job is to help understand who they are, what they need, what would be beneficial. You have some subject matter expertise in this problem that they're trying to solve for themselves. And so 
Your job is to be their assistant in making this very important, very valuable decision and finding whatever is best for them. And so as a way of framing in your own mind, sales kind of has these icky connotations that a lot of particularly new entrepreneurs are very uncomfortable with. When really you can reframe most of that as you are making friends with someone you've never met before. You're trying to understand what would be good for them. And you're trying to help them make a really good decision, whatever that good decision happens to be for them. And when you think about sales in that way, it becomes a lot less scary and it becomes a lot more interesting and a lot more fun. Um, Because it also takes the pressure off of yourself of like, oh, you know, I, I need to persuade, I need to convince, I need to, you know, be the one who gets someone to do something that they might not want to do. No, that's, that's not how it works at all. And so there are a lot of different methods that you can use to do this. Um, the, the two best, you know, we talked about value-based selling, like really understanding what the customer wants or needs. And then there's a, a, a kind of a, a, close, a close technique. It's not exactly the same thing, but there are similarities called education-based selling, where it's you are helping the customer become a better customer of the thing that you sell. And so there's, there's a, a quote by a lady, her name is Kathy Sierra, that I just love. And paraphrasing a, a, a relatively long quote, she says, don't sell better cameras help your customers become better photographers because when they become better photographers, they're going to want better cameras. And so just helping people understand more about what it is that you do, it encourages them to want more. And when they want more, they're pulling from you instead of you pushing on them. Now, there are a lot of, call it structural barriers to making a sale. The classic objections, like, I don't have enough money. I don't know if this is worth it. I don't know if it'll work. I, there's, a, <laughs> there's a special case. I don't know if it'll work for me. So I see that this is a good thing. I've seen seeing this work for other people. Yeah, I believe that, but I don't, I'm a special case. I'm, I'm the one, you know, to which the common market does not apply. And the best thing about those kinds of objections, you know in advance they're coming. They're always going to be coming. They apply to everything. And so that combination of the mindset shift of I'm an assistant buyer, I'm going to try to help them make the best decision that I can. And being a prepared seller, knowing well in advance the types of questions that a, that a customer is going to ask, doing your research, having answers to those things before the sales conversation actually takes place, that puts you in the best position to make the final sale. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Hey, AppFam. Starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, And she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, 
the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting, and that's all lowercase. If you wanna start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you wanna start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Let's play a game because uh, this got my wheel spinning and, and a cool activity that we could do. Let's pick a product and I'll say some objections and you can counteract my objections about that specific product. So you pick the product. Let me see what, let's, let's do the, uh, the camera thing since we, we brought that up earlier. Okay. So camera, Josh, I think the camera is too expensive. Well, it's a really a a question of, of what you value, right? Like, so if let's, let's say hypothetically, if you owned a camera, what would be the kinds of things that you use the camera for? For shooting YouTube videos. Shooting YouTube video. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and you're using your YouTube videos for, for what exactly? Help me understand what that looks like. To promote my podcast. Okay. Interesting. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, maybe the video features of a camera are more important to you than capturing still images. Am I understanding that right? Yes. Okay. So there are a couple of different kinds of cameras that we can look at here. And there's this whole class that are essentially optimized for still images. Those don't apply to you. So we're just, we're just going to ignore all of those. It's not what you're looking for. There are a bunch of different cameras now that come with an integrated video feature that will help you, for example, make sure that you're always in focus. And so, you know, everybody will be able to, to see your, your eyes and your face clearly. It will blur out the background. You'll look amazing. There are features that will help control the exposure. So like how much light is entering the camera, making sure that, you know, you look really great and then there's nothing weird going on with the image. There are certain kinds of cameras that we can make sure hook up directly to your computer. And so whether you want to shoot video on the go or you're in your office and you want to shoot video for your YouTube channel there. And so based on all, do those sound like things that would be helpful in using this camera to do what you want to do? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. So based on those features, here are three different options. Camera A, camera B, and camera C. And we could have this conversation over a longer period of time to understand uh, the trade-offs between these features. Like maybe hooking up to a, a computer is would be a really handy thing to do because you always shoot video in your office. You don't shoot it anywhere else. And so I could confidently recommend camera C to you because based on how you're going to use the camera, this has the best balance of features for what you want to use it for. And this is the price of that. So basically you are leading with value, right? What did you unpack what you just did there? You were leading with value. Did you do anything else? Value comparison maybe? Yeah. So, so what I, this is a, an example of something called qualification, which is when, when you have a new customer not every customer you talk to is going to be a good customer and not all of them are going to be a good fit for whatever it is that you have to offer. And so my first question is like, how are you going to use this is a qualification question. Like what, what is the kind, like you're saying that you want a camera, but there are lots of different cameras that do lots of different things. So if, for example, you're, you were an art student and you're going to be shooting architecture images in black and white, and you need the most crazy detailed, like that's a completely different ballpark of camera. And so by asking a few questions up front, you can really narrow down like, okay, is this a good customer? Is this a customer I can help? What is the thing that they would find most helpful? And then of that, I can ask some additional questions to get more information to kind of triangulate what the, what potential solutions might be. So why didn't you jump to discounting? Like, why didn't you just give me a discount? What's the problem with giving a discount? 
Yeah, I think discounts are sometimes a useful tool and sometimes very dangerous and more dangerous from a strategic standpoint, less so from an individual transaction standpoint. When you think about it, discounts just eliminate your margin or reduce your margin to a certain extent. And so sometimes there's a certain amount of value that's added by the urgency of an expiring discount. Like, you know, okay, there's a special sale going on. You need to make a decision within the next day or so or an opportunity is gone. That can be useful. But unless you understand exactly what it is that the customer wants to buy and why they want to buy, you're not in a position to talk about even price yet because the customer doesn't have as much confidence in your suggestion, what it is that you're trying to to get them to do. So by helping, both by collecting more information from the customer, like what is the thing that's going to help them the most, you're getting that information and you can use that to guide the conversation in a productive direction. But think about it from the customer's perspective. You're exhibiting a lot of interest in them, in their problem, what it is they're trying to do, what's important, what's not. And so when you have that conversation, towards the end of it, the customer feels very well heard, understood, valued. And so instead of just like, oh, you need a camera? You should buy this because it's $20,000 and I would make my bonus this month if I were able to sell it. It becomes much more from the customer's perspective, like, no, this person knows a lot about what they're talking about. And I trust that because they have the information, they're guiding me in a direction that's going to be good for me. And then is there ever a situation where we should lead with a less expensive product or offering to kind of get a customer in the door or get that, you know, name brand under our list of logos that we have? Like, is there ever like a case for getting a a cheaper customer in the door? Yes. Okay. So there are two broad situations where this is valuable. The first is called a loss leader. And so that's, you know, the, the selling a, an offer at a loss at the beginning, because you know, over the lifetime of your relationship with that customer, they're going to buy a lot from you. And so uh, you can see this a lot of times where memberships are becoming much more of a, a market trend. And very often it would be like, you know, the, the first purchase that you make from us, we're going to give you 20% off to make that purchase or 15% off or whatever it is. The reason that makes sense is because once you're a customer, you're highly likely when you have this need again, you're going to come back and purchase from them over and over and over again. And so the loss leader establishing a relationship that then you can sell to them over a longer period of time, excellent reason to use discounting. The other thing that you can do, and this this is much more on the relationship end, um, this is called a damaging admission. And so sometimes it's in the context of like, okay, this is something that's not super great about the product and I want to tell you about that up front so you, you know about it. Sometimes in the context of, of sales, this is saying, okay, you know, going back to our camera conversation, there are three different cameras that fit what, the things that you're looking for. And A is $5,000, B is $10,000, and C is $15,000. The natural expectation for most customers is like, oh yeah, they're going to try to sell me on the $15,000 one. And so you can sometimes gain a lot of trust with a new customer in particular by saying, no, you should buy the $5,000 one because it does everything that you need. The value is much better. And all of the other cool features that the other more expensive ones have Super overkill for you. You don't need it. Don't worry about it. This is the one that you want. And so that that like admission against interest, you know, the subverting the expectation of I'm going to try to sell, take you for the as as much money as I possibly can. You don't have to play that game. And that's where you really establish a good reputation of really looking out for your customers' best interests. Wasn't that wonderful? And now you can check Get an MBA off your to-do list. 
But seriously, Josh gave us a masterclass on the foundations of business. I love nerding out with him about this stuff, and I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as well. I could go on and on about how much I loved the conversation overall, but an overarching theme that I want to highlight is that before you get your business off the ground, you've got to prepare for it and do your research. Take the time to evaluate the market, test your product or service, nail down solutions to those obstacles and objections, and set your price. I've seen so many businesses fall flat because they've jumped in too quickly and overlooked all of these fundamentals. So there's a couple things to keep in mind when deciding whether or not to move forward with your business idea. The first is the value creation aspect. How is your business going to bring in value? In business, the gold mine is a product or service that helps people solve a problem. Josh calls this the hassle premium. The more challenging a task is, the more people will pay to have somebody else do it for them. So if you're wanting to start a business, but you don't know exactly what you want to do, start brainstorming what hassles exist in your life and potential ways that you can solve them. Next, remember the iron law of the market. Markets that don't exist don't care. To generate revenue, you need to have people who actually want to buy what you're selling. Now, this may sound obvious, but if you don't do your research, it can be super easy to get caught up in the excitement of your idea and overlook this crucial factor. So remember to look at what people are already spending money on and see if you can offer it in a newer or better way. For instance, when I started the Yap Media production part of the agency, I started it because I saw that there was tons of people who were paying money to have their podcast produced, but then nobody was listening to these podcast, there was no promotion or marketing to grow their audience and reach. Basically, there was a lot of people out there spending time, energy, and money to create their podcasts with very little return on investment because nobody was listening. And so that means they weren't getting any sponsors and nobody was buying their products. And so it was pretty pointless. And so I figured that I could offer not only very high quality production, but I could also offer the promotion and supercharge the growth of their audience and following. The market existed and was viable, and I found a newer and better way to service it. Lastly, don't forget Josh's rule of thumb when it comes to pricing. Do your research, choose a number, and then triple it. Entrepreneurs tend to undervalue their work, so give yourself some credit. You worked hard for this. You learned everything you needed to learn to get it done, so set a competitive price and see what happens next. Yap bam, you are all the absolute best. I'm so lucky to have all the amazing listeners that I do have, and it really makes my day when you guys share Yap on your social media. You guys can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Yap with Hala. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. My name is Hala Taha. It's kind of hard to miss me on that platform. And if you guys want to go above and beyond in terms of supporting me and the show, the best way to do that is to drop us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Apple podcast reviews really mean a lot to me. So if you happen to listen on Apple podcasts, make sure you subscribe and drop us a written review. I would really appreciate it. And if you want to hear more from Josh, we have a lot of content with him. You can go back to episodes number 106 and 107 and hear the full two-part series. It was amazing. That's why I ended up talking to him for two hours. And thanks as always for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast and to my awesome Yap team. I couldn't do this without you guys. This is your host, Halataha, signing off.